Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. So excited for you to join me for part two of The Faith of the Ancients. Thank you again for sharing out this podcast, for liking, subscribing, and putting up reviews that help us grow. I am going to dive right into this next part of a better understanding, a clearer understanding of the faith of the ancients and how it empowers us today. Hoping that you have listened to part one and you know what I'm talking about. So we defined Mantic and Sophic and we talked about how the ancient Greeks and Egyptians and other civilizations began as Mantic civilizations. That's significant because the power and the fuel and the purpose of the civilization was attained through those revelatory experiences and it was a had a binding in, influence on the civilization um what someone might say today is that greece became you know more powerful as it became more sophic and reason based and that's what we find in the great philosophers with the pinnacle being aristotle but what they don't know perhaps, is that he also believed in God and believed in revelatory experiences in the afterlife and believed that virtue was the key to happiness, as we've seen. And it was the Sophic, which led to the sophistic worldview that actually unraveled the ancient civilization, as we find with Rome and um, and other great civilizations. It's the unraveling of the mantic perspective and the focus on accountability and um, virtue and morality that eventually causes the civilization to decline. And we see evidence of that in many civilizations. We see that here as well. And so as we get to the writings of Sophocles and we head into Plato and Socrates, what we see here is that now we're on the decline. Now the sophistic worldview the Sophic worldview has become more and more predominant and the battle really begins between the Mantic and the Sophic around this time period of these great philosophers and playwrights. And they're, they're all within about a hundred year time frame. It's like really like, uh, I can't remember the exact dates, but like the 400s into the 300s BC that these three men are living. And we're going to start with Oedipus Rex, which was written by Sophocles at this time when what what's happened is that reason has grown as a way of living and a way of centering your life. And the Sophic focus that has now trickled down from the seven sages 200 years later is gaining ground. And you have these teachers now coming in. A big thing that Plato and Aristotle really fought against was getting paid to teach. They really believed 
that you should be a truth seeker and you should be willing to share that truth with, with whoever was willing to listen. And so these new teachers come in and they teach rhetoric and they teach speaking for speaking's sake and debate for debate's sake. And the purpose starts to become no longer to seek and teach truth, but to gain fame. And you could be paid for, um, being a popular speaker and you could vie for political position and you would kind of be famous in this civilization because you would go and debate and you would win these debates and you would prove that you were right. And so they were teaching these, this young generation not to be truth seekers, but rather to, um, to be right, to, to debate in such a way that you could prove a point, whether it was true or not, whether you were ultimately actually right or not, it was just to gain attention and fame and, and wealth. And this is what these philosophers are really fighting against. And they're really kind of pounding home. No, things ought to be different. Things ought to be different. We ought to be truth seekers. And that's what we find in apology. So Sophocles writes this play right when this debate is really heated now, I should mention that a sophistic is different than a sophic. A sophistic is this last person. The sophic is genuinely, you know, like a humanist and really does try to think things through and try to get their information correct and try to do what they think, you know, would be the right thing to do. But the sophistic just is vying for position. It's just all um, from a selfish perspective, from a, an advantage perspective and, and, and getting gain. And that's actually, unfortunately, where we get the word sophisticated. <laughs> if you're sophisticated, then you're one of these people that is doing whatever is necessary to posture and gain position. So in Oedipus Rex, we see Sophocles, who was a priest, who is trying to make a point about this really ever more raging battle between the Mantic and the Sophic worldviews. And he's pointing out that the Mantics are right. You know, what, what the Mantics and the Sophics always, even today, accuse each other of being as blind. And there's a lot of that imagery and symbolism in this play. <clears throat> but he wants to make the point that the Mantic is the right way to live. That there is a higher power, that there is an afterlife, that there is ultimate accountability, that revelation can guide our lives. Now, you wouldn't think this was the case because if you know the story very well, you know that it doesn't turn out well for Oedipus. <laughs> and it takes some understanding of these worldviews to see what Sophocles was really trying to do. He was a renowned playwright and it was entered in a contest and he should have won. But the powers that be were leaning more and more heavily toward the sophistic worldview. And that is why this play was 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 renounced not not renounced outright but was not taken seriously and it is the reason why socrates was put to death because the sophics were winning and they were trying to make the point that the mantic worldview was no longer valid that belief in god and the afterlife was no longer valid and this, of course, is something that you're not going to get in any of your high school or college classes. <laughs> you're not going to get this perspective. But these authors uh, go into some of this. And, and so I was tipped 
off and I went back into it and studied it myself. And I really wanted to see if I felt like they were right. And I really wanted to see if those elements of the mantic versus the sophic were really there. And when I, when I, when I understood the framework and I understood the language, then it, I could see that this was what was really going on. So of course the story of Oedipus the King is that it has been prophesied that Oedipus will kill his father and marry his mother. And the play begins with him as the king in uh, a land. He is a stranger from that land. He wandered there and there was um, a sphinx that was raging through the land and killing everybody off. And he was able to figure out whatever the riddle was to um, get rid of the Sphinx and to battle the Sphinx and to win. And then he married the queen and became the king. And so everyone thinks he's wonderful and he's seen as a hero. And uh, he this, this play was actually written in 429 and Socrates was killed in 399. So there's about a 30 year difference in an increasing decline in the Mantic worldview from the time this play was written to the time Socrates was put to death. So that's key to know. So we start this out. Now the people have come to Oedipus and, and they're begging for his help because they're having a plague and they want to know what they're supposed to do about this plague. And what you need to know about this play is that there is a lot of, if you're, if you're keyed into it, there's a lot of revelatory experiences. There's a lot of priests talking and oracles being referenced. And you can see that it's him battling himself, battling against himself and against these oracles and against this revelation. So the priest comes to him at first and says, he's begging for the people, please King, do something for us to help us um, overcome this, this drought we're dying off, you know? And he says, it was God that aided you men say, and you are held with God's assistance to a saved our lives. Perhaps you'll hear a wise word from some God. So right at the very beginning, this starts out with God helped you to become the king that you are now. You received revelation from him. He'll give you some revelation again. He'll help you save us again. And so Oedipus decrees that he is on the side of the gods for sure. No question. He is already sent to the oracle to get the revelation necessary to know what needs to be done. Uh, he says, I sent Menenaeus' son Creon, Jocasta's brother. Jocasta's the queen, his wife. Sometimes it's written Iacosta. I'm not sure which it is. Um, Creon went to Apollo to his Pythian temple that he might learn there by what afterward I could save this city. But when he comes, then may I prove a villain if I shall not do all the God commands. So he pronounces his commitment to the Mantic worldview early on. He says, I am totally in on whatever God wants done. I'm going to, I'm going to follow the Oracle exactly. And so the Oracle, the uh, Creon comes back and he says, great news. This is awesome news. And Oedipus is like, awesome. And, and this is another thing that these authors point out when kind of deconstructing this play, and, and I, I saw more of it as I went through it, but they kind of tipped me off to it, is that he he all he pretty much always receives good news from from God, from the oracles, from the priests. 
but he willfully rejects it and twists it and distorts it uh, because he doesn't want to obey it. <laughs> really, it's ultimately what it is. So Creon comes back. He's like, great news. And Ed is like, okay, what is it? And he says, well, all we have to do is find the man who has, what's the word he uses? He says, there's a man who's polluted our land. We have to find him and drive him out. We got to banish him from our city. And that's how he says, Oedipus says, what's the right of purification? He says, all we have to do is banish this man. We could put him to death too, banishment or death for this man who's polluted our city. So then he finds out that the crime that's been committed is that someone killed the king. Now this happened a long time ago because later on we find out that Oedipus has children with Jocasta that are grown men. So he's been there for quite a long time being the king. They have several children. They have at least two boys and two girls together. And, um, so the king was dead. He went off on some journey and didn't come back. And so they, they never really knew for sure. But now it's been witnessed by the gods that he was killed and his, his death needs to be avenged by banishing the killer. So, so Oedipus comes out and he says, okay, I am going to be the champion of my country and of God. And we're going to do whatever we got to do to root out this killer and to take care of things so that we can get, we can, we can save the city. He says, justly will you see me an ally, a champion of my country and the God. So I stand forth the champion of God and of the man who died. So he has another idea. He sends for a prophet because the prophet is going to tell him who the man is because nobody's coming forward with any information that's helpful and they can't figure out who it is and people are dying and they can't get rid of this, this plague. And so he sends for the prophet who he trusts implicitly. Everybody trusts the prophet. He's blind. He's old. He's highly respected. He is clearly a man of God and gives great um, prophecies and information. And so he comes forward and he's like, Oedipus is like, okay, um, who is it? And, and Tiresias is like, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> and Oedipus is like, what? And he's like, yeah, I think it'd be better if I just went home. And Oedipus gets really mad. And the more mad he gets, the more um, Tiresias is like, yeah, just, just let me go. And finally, Oedipus accuses him of being the murderer. He's like, oh, clearly you're the one that plotted to murder the king. And that's why you're avoiding telling us the truth. And why would you withhold revelation from us? And why wouldn't you tell us what, what God says. And so there's this showdown again between the prophet and who is the mantic and Oedipus who says he's a mantic, but is actually really a sophic. And he says, okay, you did it. And <laughs> Oedipus is like, um, you are insane. I would kill you if I could blah, blah, blah. And then he just decides that Creon is the one that has worked with this prophet to try to get, because Creon is the next in line to be king. So he's certain that they're setting him up. And as soon as Creon comes back, he's going to kill Creon. So he's already turned on the prophet. As soon as he's accused, he's so desperate to alleviate himself of responsibility. He's so desperate to not look inside and see if this prophecy might be right and see if he really might be the killer, that he does everything in his power. He winds up accusing the prophet, whom he implicitly trusts, 
pre- previously, as well as Cleon, as well as Jocasta, who are all the people who are who he trusts the most, who are the most trustworthy. He ends up accusing them all at some point of being evil and against him and trying to do him in. Anyway, um, he says, Oedipus then, that you know, the sophic that he is really kind of comes to the surface. He says, I stopped the Sphinx. I solved the riddle by my wit alone. Mine was no knowledge got from birds. Another way, another translation of this, what is, it was not God, it was I who solved the riddle of the Sphinx by my own unaided powers. I did it by using my brains and not any supernatural hokum. And um, Tiresias is like, I'm not your servant, I'm God's. You've You've usurped divine authority. You're willfully blind in darkness at noon. You begged for my instructions and now you won't take them. So he's really angry. He's ready to kill Creon. Creon comes back. He's ready just to take him out and kill him. And he has absolutely no evidence. He's just desperate not to believe this prophecy. And so then Jocasta shows up luckily and she's in there, you know, he and Creon are, Creon's like arguing with him and he's like, no way, you know, it just, you gotta, let's, let's figure this out. I don't know what's going on. I didn't plot against you. And so then Jocasta's like, look, I'm going to prove the gods wrong. And then she shows what a sophic she is. And she's like, look, here's how it really went down. And she starts talking about what actually happened, uh, the, uh, the information that she has (laughs) And, um, and the more she says, the worse it gets. She says, I'm going to prove that they're wrong because there was an Oracle that once came to Laius and that was her husband that someone has killed. And it told him that he was fated to die by the hands of his own son and that his son would marry me. And now this strikes a chord with Oedipus because He's never told anyone how he really ended up in this country and how he really ended up in this country was that um, they were at dinner one time. He's the son of a king and a queen and they were at dinner and there was a man there, a a drunk who accused him of, of being illegitimate. And it really struck a chord with him and it started to become this really rampant rumor and lots of people were saying this. And so he wanted to know if it was true. So he went to the Oracle. This is the classic story of someone who doesn't, who, who doesn't really love God, who isn't really trying to obey God, who isn't really emantic in their heart, but they try to use revelation to get a quick answer. And when it doesn't work out the way that they like, they want it to work out, they just turn on him. So he goes to the Oracle. The Oracle tells him, well, we're not going to answer that question, but what we will tell you is that you're going to kill your father and marry your mother. And so he's just desperate to try to make that not happen. And he's, he runs away from home so that he won't kill his father and marry his mother, which is, you know, admirable or whatever. And so then he's on the road out of town and he kills a guy. He doesn't know he's a king, but he kills his own dad right there in a fit of passion because they're trying to get him off the road. And so the king, you know, hits him. And so he kills him. He kills the whole, he kills all of them that are with the king, except for one servant who gets away. So what you find is that actually over time, you find out that he's actually totally emotionally out of control, that he just accuses people on a whim. He's not trustworthy himself. He uh, is desperate at every turn to prove the Oracle wrong. And in, And in taking desperate measures, every time he takes desperate measures, he just proves the Oracle right. 
He just proves God right every time because in this fit of passion, he does kill the king. And in this fit of passion, he does, you know, he, he knew how much older Jocasta was than him. He could have asked questions. <laughs> he didn't ask any questions. He didn't say, you know what? Um, I, they said it was, I'm not a legitimate child of these parents. You know, he didn't take the Oracle seriously. He didn't actually try to find out if Jocasta could be his mom before he married her, even though she was old enough to be his mother. You know, he didn't try to find out who it was he killed on the road. He just didn't want to know. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't want to be humble. He didn't want to be teachable. He didn't want to learn. And, and he continues to reject all of this um, revelation that comes to him. And so then it, it, it becomes clear over time, over the next, you know, it all happens in one day. And by the end of the day, it's clear that it is true. He finds out that it was the king that he killed on the road. He finds out that he did marry his mom and he has all these children with her. <clears throat> and um, the play ends, you know, and so then Jocasta is actually also responsible. She also, she and Laius also weren't mantics and didn't try to do, you know, didn't, didn't seek further revelation, didn't try to, you know, they just took their son and slashed his, his, his feet and sent him off to die. And these shepherds were too, um, too empathic to let that happen. And so he ended up in the hands of the king and the queen and was raised by them. And so, uh, she participated in that. She tried to murder her own child. And um, <laughs> anyway, just so fascinating to look at this play this way, which is never a way that we look at it, this battle between reason and prophecy. And it's interesting because one of the things that these authors talk about is how modern scholars will say, oh, poor Oedipus, he was fated. You know, there was no chance. I mean, look at these horrible gods that gave him such a horrible fate. But then you ask the question, but but what, what did he do to take the prophecy seriously? And what did he do to try to make it not come true? He ran away from home and then he killed some, I mean, if he never killed anybody, he couldn't kill his father. You know what I mean? So it's like, really fascinating to look at it that way. I'd encourage you to go through it and, and, and look for these evidences. And so Jocasta kills herself and in a, you know, in a, in, in a fit of, of emotion again, and then Oedipus slashes his eyes out in a fit of passion. And they just, they just continue to, rather than humbly, teachably seek for truth and, and get information and find ways of overcoming this with God's help. They just take it all at face value and act impulsively. And one of the things that these authors point out is, especially to a modern scholar, they're not even looking at it from a mantic perspective because the mantic, the person who truly believes in God would be asking, you know, why don't you go get more revelation? Why don't you go ask how you could overcome this? Why don't you, you know, and, 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 and the whole point is that all, and I have to say that a, a messenger comes from, on this day, a messenger comes from the country that Oedipus is from and tells him that his father has died of natural causes and that they want him to come back and be king. So if he was thinking rationally at all, even though this prophecy had come true, even though it didn't have to come true and he participated in it coming true, even though it had come true, redemption was still possible. 
All that the prophecy said was that he had to leave town. That's all he had to do. Just admit it. Admit that he had done it. Take responsibility. Repent. Say, yes, I killed my father and and married my mother, but I'm going to leave town. And then it'll be okay. And then the gods will help me to know what to do next. And he can leave town and be the king in another land. I mean, he doesn't even have to give up being the king. It's good news every time. And, and, and the oracles are trying to help him overcome this thing that he's faded himself to. And so anyway, at the end of the play, what's fascinating to me is that Creon is the mantic. So he's the one that keeps calling on the gods and five times in the last short act, you know, in the very last moments of the play, five different times Creon says, begs Oedipus again, don't you want to consult the gods? Don't you think that we should pray? Don't you, I'll, I'll go get a prophet. We'll figure this out together with God. And every single time Oedipus turns him down. Nope, this is just what it is. I'm just going to be blind and miserable now. And he pulls his daughters in and he's like, sorry, your lives are going to stink for the rest of your life. And everyone's going to know your terrible father and your terrible history. And life is just miserable and there's no way to, to go on. Because it is the moral framework. It is the belief in a higher power that brings the hope of better things that brings the purpose, the spiritual purpose for the civilization and for the individual. And he's purposeless now. He's just faded and it's just horrible. And these things have happened and it just ends with, and, and, and Creon kept, keeps saying, can't we just consult God? Can't we just do that now? And he just turns him down five times. I counted. <laughs> and you know, Creon is now, he, you know, he didn't really, he, t- he says earlier in the play, I don't care about being the king. I'm comfortable. I just support you. I just try to be here for my sister and be here for you and be here for the people and whatever I can do to be helpful. He's the one that's actually kind. He doesn't counter accuse um, Oedipus. Anyway, look for his behavior as the mantic because it's far more kind. It's far more patient. It's far more temperate. Um, and it's seeking for revelation for God to help. So that's Oedipus Rex. That went a little longer than, than I wanted it to go. Let me touch on a few points from apology. We'll go a few minutes long today, but that'll be okay. Um, I want to point out before, I'm going to just going to give you some powerful quotes from Apology from Socrates, but it's important that you know going in that one of the points that Socrates, that, that Plato may, of course, Plato wrote the things about Socrates because Socrates was dead, but Plato wrote Apology about Socrates, you know, about the, about the trial. And one of the things that Plato points out in his writings about Socrates and about himself is that when they were young men, there was a time in their lives when they embraced evolutionary ideas. He says, when I was young, I was fanatically devoted to the intellectual quest, which they call natural science. Filled with pride and youthful conceit, I was convinced that I could know the reason for everything. I was always experimenting to discover the secrets of nature and life. He was convinced that, uh, I was convinced that no one need look any farther than science for the answers to everything. So he was, he, was a, he was a very devoted Sophic and believed in evolution. Then he says that he read a passage that completely changed his point of view. It said, there is a mind that orders things and causes all things to be. The idea electrified him. He turned from the majority at, at this point in time, the majority were Sophics to join a small 
minority. Shall we say, he says, discussing the nature of the earth, that God, the creator, made it? Or would you prefer the teaching and language that everybody follows today, that it all came about simply by spontaneous cause and without any intelligence? Okay. Does that sound familiar or what? So these guys were both sophics and science focused and believed in spontaneous um, cause, which is evolution and big bang and no intelligence. And so then it goes on to explain, and he explains this in apology. He explains why he is being, why he is on trial. So he says, um, essentially I'm on trial because I became a mantic I believe in God, I believe in revelation, and I believe that the highest purpose in life is to become as virtuous as we possibly can. Um, and he says that he is on a divine mission. In fact, twice in apology, in my translation, it uses the word mission. He believes himself to be on a divine mission. He says God has spoken to him and told him what he is to do. He said, I heard the oracle tell me that uh, the oracle said that he was the wisest man in Greece or whatever. And he asked himself, he told himself, you know, he thought that can't be, there's no way that I could be the wisest man. And so he felt God was calling him on a mission to help other people discover what true wisdom was. He said, when I heard the answer, I said to myself, what can the God mean? And what is the interpretation of this riddle? For I know that I have no wisdom, small or great. What then can he mean when he says I'm the wisest of men? And yet he is God and cannot lie. That would be against his nature. So he believes that God has called him to go speak to as many Greeks as possible and convince them that they should obey God. And that they should follow what God's revelation is. And they should seek to be virtuous and not seek for worldly pleasures. Um, and what, what the result of that was, is that he went to, you know, he's in the streets. The young men are following him around and listening to him because he's really fascinating and really brilliant. And they're hearing something from him that they're not hearing. And this goes back to other podcast that I've done, um, you know, around other people who have talked about the fact that in the universities, they can't get a perspective, a creationist perspective. And so they're following him around because he's got this other perspective about creation and about revelation and about following, um, your conscience. He talks a lot about following his conscience and revelation. And, and he, he says over and over again, I have to do what God's asked me to do. I have to follow the mission he's given me. And so that meant that he went around town and anyone that was willing to talk to them, he would ask them questions about how they were living their lives and what was most important to them and where they were putting their priorities. And he would try to show them that they were not being wise when they sought worldly pursuits instead of spiritual pursuits. So he says, um, so I go about the world obedient to God and search and make inquiry into the wisdom of anyone, whether citizen or stranger who appears to be wise. And if he is not wise, then in vindication of the Oracle, I show him that he's not. 
that he's not wise and my occupation quite absorbs me and I have no time to give either to my public matter public matters of interest or any concern of my own, but I am an utter poverty by reason of my devotion to God. He says, a man who is good for anything ought not to calculate the change of living or dying. He ought only to consider whether in doing anything he is doing right or wrong, acting the part of a good man or a bad. God orders me to fulfill the philosopher's mission of searching into myself and other men. If I were to desert my post through fear of death or any other fear, that would indeed be strange and I might justly be arraigned in court for denying the existence of the gods. Because they're trying to say he doesn't believe in God and they're trying to say all this stuff that just totally isn't true. What they're accusing him of is corrupting the youth. And the reason they're accusing him of this is because they're the worldly wise and they're the ones in power and he's made them look stupid to their young, to, to the youth because he's pointed out that they are not wise in pursuing worldly stuff over the care of their own soul. That they should, he says, um, I do nothing but go about persuading you all, old and young alike, not to take thought for your persons or your properties, but first and chiefly to care about the greatest improvement of the soul. This is my teaching. And if this is doctrine which corrupts the youth, then yes, I am a mischievous person. And, and so they accused him and they brought him into court and they tried to accuse him of all kinds of strange things. Um, corrupting the youth and not giving deference to the, to, to the gods. But ultimately his point is I'm actually the one that's trying to find out what God wants me to do. And he feels this divine mission to, he says, he says, I realize that the best thing that I could do is go from person to person and care about the one and try to convince them one by one that they should look into their soul and that they should try to be the best that they could be and that they should uh, follow their conscience. Um, where, uh, I just, he says, he asked himself where I could do the greatest good privately to every one of you. Thither I went and sought to persuade every man among you that he must look to himself and seek virtue and wisdom before he looks to his private interests. And then we get this most famous quote that you've probably all heard from Plato through Socrates. This is Socrates, um, saying this in, in apology, I say again, that daily to discourse about virtue and of those other things about which you hear me examining myself of others is the greatest good of man and that the unexamined life is not worth living. So, 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 so powerful. Um, he ends by, by saying, you know, he's been condemned and he forgives his condemners. He says, you know, I have devoted myself to listening to my conscience. He says, I should like to tell you of a wonderful circumstance hitherto the divine faculty of which, of which the internal oracle is the source has constantly been in the habit of opposing me, even in trifles, if I was going to make a slip or error in any manner. So he can considers it a wonderful circumstance that he has a conscience. He has an internal oracle that will constantly tell him when he's going to go wrong. And if he listens to it, he won't go wrong. And that's how he knows he's in, he says he's 70. I think he might be right at 70. And, and he has tried for however many years since his conversion to listen to this inner Oracle and to consult the oracles. And he knows that this is his divine mission and he's going to fulfill his, his mission on earth to go about to every citizen that will possibly listen and try to convince them that they should 
put aside their personal interests and they should pursue the goods of the soul. They should follow God and they should listen to their conscience. That that was the best good that he could have done for his civilization. And of course, that's the best good he could have done for for the world because we still have his writings and we still have all these wonderful things that he said um, and did. And, and he died for his faith. He was a martyr. Um, but at the end, he forgives, he forgives his accusers and he says, you know, um, I did not hear anything negative from God about the fact that I've been condemned to die. And that must mean that dying is a good thing. And that's evidence to me that there's an afterlife. And I'm actually excited to go and meet with other people who have lived great men and women that I admire and to learn from them and to continue my search for truth. And so I don't condemn you. And and the only thing I would ask of you, he says, is that as my children get older, I would ask you to um, remind them to to put the needs of their soul first and to follow the advice that I've given you and to not um, pursue the things of, of man, to pursue the things of God. Uh, so it's really just incredible. I don't know. It's so inspiring to think about this civilization as the same as our civilization, that this same battle between leaning on the wisdom of man and leaning on the wisdom of God, looking to the inner soul for guidance, um, striving to be true to our consciences, seeking for revelation and following what we know to be right at any cost. That is the legacy of many of the writings um, that we have from ancient Greece. We don't look at them that way because we don't look at them with mantic eyes anymore. But if you take this understanding that you've gained in these two podcasts into some of these older documents, you'll see, you know, it will come alive for you and you'll see a new, uh, you'll have a new reference point for understanding this ancient civilization and other ancient civilizations and understanding that what we're going through in the fight to be mantics among Sophics in our civilization is the same fight that others have fought and we can take courage in in their fight and we can take courage in their choices and draw strength from them. So that is just a tiny, tiny bit of information about the faith of the ancients. I hope it's been eye-opening for you. I hope it's increased your uh, faith. I hope it's given you enhanced courage to continue on in those things that you know to be true. And it's inspired you to be a little better at listening to your own conscience today and this week and striving to be true to what God has asked you to do and knowing that those things will pay off now and they'll pay off in the life to come. Thanks so much for joining me. Please go grab your copy, uh, uh, your audio book, The Mission Driven Life, and join us in the Mission Driven Mom Facebook group if you haven't already joined us there, and I'll see you next time.